Hey all, it's AJ here from Sports Chaplaincy South Africa. Time for our call-up podcast. Folk, you've never heard it like this before. We are just oozing new regular content, interviewing elite and other sports people, keeping it real about difficult issues that they're facing in their careers and how they're getting through it. I am appealing to you, don't miss a single minute. Please subscribe and share on any of your podcast apps like Spotify, Apple, Podbean, Google. Google Podcasts, whatever it is, and search for Call Up, where faith meets sport and life. The Call Up Podcast, where faith meets sport and life. This is brought to you by Sports Chaplaincy South Africa. JP, thanks so much for joining us on this edition. Great to have you with us today. Those who are cricket fans, you're not going to need any introduction. You know, you had a long and uh, illustrious career playing for your country domestically and obviously playing in the IPL and other major T20 cricket uh, competitions uh, across the world. I'm not going to land you in it today by asking you to name the greatest player you ever played with. (laughs) Right, because there's a whole host of former teammates that might be upset with you that you didn't give them a mention. So rather than do that, we all know that there's always that locker room joker. Mm. You know, there's always that joker in the the pack. And you've you've played with many teams, lots and lots of dressing rooms. Mm. You look back over your career, you know, who was the number one joker? Who was the guy who was most likely to be the stand-up comedian? Wow, uh, where does one start? So, so firstly, let me just say thank you for the opportunity to be on the podcast. Uh, having walked the journey with the Call Up Prayer Book, uh, particularly with yourself, um, it, it certainly is a privilege to be you know, on the, the podcast. And just to dive straight in with the question, I think the, the guy that stands out as to be, and I've mentioned this on many podcast interviews, conversations with people, more name local, uh, certainly is a standout. So, you know, he's got a bit of dry humor about him, right? But there's one particular incident that just epitomizes uh, his humorous nature, right? Where in many ways, he's a little bit aloof in his approach to, to certain things and can get lost in his own head. And the incident that I'm referring to is 2008, we were playing a test match at the Oval, obviously against England. And, uh, you know, naturally, when you're playing a test series in England, it is quite heightened, um, high expectation, responsibility. Uh, you think about the crowds that come in, in their numbers. And the test, the test match at the time, I think we were probably on day four or something, and it was quite intense. Um, it was in the balance. He was batting. And uh, I think it was Andrew Flintoff that was bowling, and it was quite a quite was a, quite an aggressive yeah guy, right <laughs> yeah and it was quite a, an aggressive spell that he was facing, and eventually uh, Flintoff got him out, and um, you know in the disappointment of Mornay Morkel, not realizing when he walked off, where he was actually walking, the direction he was actually walking was not actually to the change room. So it was just diagonally to the train, probably about 100, probably 50 meters rather, to the right of the change room. And he had his head down, obviously, in disappointment, and he was walking. 
and eventually he found himself when he looked up five meters from the uh, the groundsman's shed. <laughs> Not and the pavilion. Not the pavilion. And eventually he looked up and he was like amazed at where he was. And obviously the crowd was watching him. If you think back to the the oval, um, the change room, you have to walk actually through the crowd essentially to get to the change room. And now he was 50 meters from the stairs in between the crowd. And obviously the crowd acknowledged now the fact that he was in the wrong place. And I reckon he's getting a load of jip from Oh, there, he is. Right? And eventually... He ended up having to walk through the crowd, through the seats, to the stairs of where... So by the time he got to you, he'd had two beers. <laughs> Pretty much. And the crowd just lost the plot. But but through all the disappointment, I think that moment in itself, you know, for us as a team, we just broke out laughing because obviously we saw what had happened and it was just such a comical moment, uh, and it epitomizes the. It's kind of Mr. Bean meets this match cricket, right? <laughs> it, it, it epitomizes the character of Morning Walker, quite, quite very much the Joker in the team, um, and just a great human being and a great teammate. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great story. I'm picturing it in my own mind, so <laughs> I've got to look out and see if there's a video of that yeah. there, there somewhere. But uh, you know, let, let's dive into a conversation today. You know, before. You have this long CV um, playing professional cricket at the, the highest level. Like anyone, you, you're starting out. You know, Just tell us um, about growing up and in particular how you started playing cricket yeah. and at what point you realised that you might be able to make a career out of this. So cricket essentially started for me in uh, Strandfontein. Uh, that's where I grew up. And it literally started in the streets of Stramadane using, you know, the black bins as wickets um, in the streets. It's not high tech, then. <laughs> the, 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 the wickets were slightly taller than most, um, <laughs> put it that way. Uh, and we had a unique ways of playing the game where if you hit in somebody's garden, you were out. So essentially it taught you to hit the ball late, I guess, in many ways, hit the ball into the ground. Um, but that's where it started. That's where I found the love for the game. And as natural um, young kids, you've got this curiosity about various sporting codes and you imitate your heroes in the street of how you play the game. And it was nothing different for me. You know, I imitated Brian Lara, Jacques Callis, uh, Herschel Gibbs, all heroes of mine. Who fortunately, I ended up playing we managed against. managed to keep the ball on the ground imitating yeah. Herschel Gibbs. <laughs> well, it's a little bit different, isn't it? Um, but that's where it essentially started. And, and a f couple of my friends then ended up uh, moving around eight to nine years old, moving to play for Stranford and Cricket Club. And I just naturally followed them. Um, and that's where I started to play the game. I remember my very first game. We played against Victoria. I was playing for Stranford. How old were you then? I was nine years old, playing under 10, and uh, got a first ball duck. Yeah. That what was an illustrious <laughs> start to your career. <laughs> That was my, my very first experience of hardball cricket. And in my defense of maturity, I walked off thinking, well, I guess I can't get worse than that. <laughs> That's a great attitude to have, though, isn't it? Yeah. Like not allowing that moment of failure to define Correct. you. Correct. Thank goodness you didn't. Thank you. Yes. Um, but fortunately, it really just rose from there. You know, uh, ended up playing under 11 and under 13 for the club. Uh, you know, got drafted into the various provincial camps that were that we had under 11. Then ended up playing for Western Province under 13A at, at, at the age of 12. Um, and then from there, sort of progressed to every age group in provincial cricket. 
and then just to fast track it to, um, I think it was 15 or 16, uh, a significant time in my life at that, you know, at that sort of sensitive time as a, as a young man, um, I went through a, a dreadful time in terms of form in, in school cricket. I was at high school already. And I remember thinking this was not for me. You know, I was thinking I was averaging under 10 through that wow. entire season. And I basically went to my dad and I said, I don't want to play this game anymore. So yours is, is not a story of, of uh, you know, uh, you, you hear all these stories. I imagine Revis is like this, you know, the yeah. youngster coming through at the moment. You know, these these kids who just knock out the 50s and 100s at yeah. schoolboy cricket yeah. and, and everybody seems to kind of go, that, that he's the one. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't, that wasn't your story. No, it, it certainly wasn't. And particularly in the season where there was real struggle, like I mentioned there, I, I really just wanted to give up the game. Uh, and unfortunately, I had a good support structure around me, my dad being uh, a pivotal part of that, you know, just encouraged me to keep going. And fortunately, you know, went through the season and um, as I said, it was a dreadful season. But, you know, you have your break sort of in the, in the winter period uh, and then, you know, just put the pads away, the, the bat away for a period of time and then came back the next season and then started again. Uh, ended up averaging 170. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so it's quite a different uh, story. I guess. Big turnaround. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that in itself was such a great lesson in the highs and lows, particularly in the game of cricket, where there's so many variables, hmm. so many uncontrollables, and um, a great life lesson. You know that we can, that I can still look back on fondly, and think of it as that impact has an impact on me today. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, that, that was a pivotal time in my career. And then, you know, it went from, from strength to strength from there on in. Uh, where at age 17, I got a provincial contract, a senior provincial contract in matric. Uh, ended up playing for the first class team um, in my matric year. Wow. Where I, um, yeah, got selected to play. And the national players at the time came back from a national tour. And uh, I think I might have shared the story with you around Gary Kirsten at some mm. point where he um, he ended up playing in that game. So the lineup was Gary Kirsten, Herschel Gibbs, um, Jacques Callis, Jonathan Trott was still at Western Province at the time, Neil Johnson, the Zimbabwean. And then it was this young 17-year-old batting at number six behind you know these illustrious players. Um, so what a great great opportunity it was for me to to share the change room with some some of my heroes, um, some of South Africa's greats at the time. And, uh, you know, the interesting story that I've shared many times around Gary Kirsten, where he didn't actually know my name when I walked out to bat and he was still at the crease. Um, yeah, so he had to actually ask the, the umpire to radio to the third umpire to ask what my name was. And this was on day two already. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, we've both of us have shared that story many times. Uh, he's certainly one of my favorite coaches, uh, favorite human beings in the cricketing fraternity. Um, so yeah, I had some some interesting stories and experiences along the upbringing. Yeah, I mean, I re I really love hearing about how you overcame that season of of disappointment and struggle as as a young sports person. Mm. 
because you're quite right. I think in, in sport, you're going to face that. You know, you're going to face disappointment. You're going to face periods where your form is poor. Mm. Um, but for that to happen at such a young age mm. may well have turned out as a blessing for you mm. because, you know, you often see young sports people who've had it really, really easy. They've always been the superstar. Yep. They've not really faced much disappointment. And suddenly they're in the professional ranks. Mm. Maybe they start off brightly and then then their resilience is tested, maybe for the first time at 20, 21, 22. Mm. You know, and they're doing a much higher level in, in the spotlight. So you know, it sounds to me like that was a, a, a real <clears throat> opportunity for you to grow you know, yeah. and, and to develop and learn resilience at a really young age. It certainly was. Uh, and, and, you know, if you fast forward into my professional career, you, it, it certainly were many experiences of ups and downs. And as you mentioned there, you know, having the experience at a young age certainly aided opportunities for that resilience, for sure. But it certainly doesn't say that, you know, in through the struggles of my career that you know, you just overcame it, mm. you know, it, it certainly was a case of where there were doubts that crept in, fear crept in. Um, let's, let's, yeah. let's dive into that sure. because I think, I think, I think that's a really helpful place to sort of launch into our, the main part of our conversation today, which is about dealing with the highs and lows, mm. dealing with the success, but also dealing with the disappointments of, of high performance sport. You know, what, what, what were some of your most memorable moments um, in your career, moments of success? Yeah, uh, I, I think if, if I referred back to uh, 2008, 2009, the, the famous tour of Australia where we, we beat Australia for the first time in, in a test series, you know, that certainly stands out as one of my favourites. Um, both and you, and you might want to do this, but I, I, I'm, I'm going to do this for those yeah. who are listening. I mean, you, you, you got your chance, yeah. uh, because Ashwell Prince was injured, wasn't sure. he? And, um, you know, great, great batsman with a great record, hasn't it, at the time? And, uh, you know, you, you come in as this younger player, mm. um, and I think it's in the second innings of the, the uh, one of the Test matches, you get a fifty. Good mm. partnership with AB de Villiers. Team goes on to win, but the big moments in that third Test, isn't it? I'm, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sound the trumpet for you here. Yeah. Uh, but you know that 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 final Test mm. um, is a defining moment, isn't it, in that series and in the history of South African cricket at the mm. time? Because I think you're seven down, two hundred behind, mm -hmm. and you and and uh, Paul Dale, was it Paul Dale Stein, wasn't it? Yeah. You put on big, big partnerships. Was it one six six something like that? You scored yeah. and uh, so it was actually the second test. Yeah, so it was a three test match yeah. series. So we had, as you mentioned, there we had beaten Australia in Perth in the first test. So naturally, you know, it's a three test series. So if you win the next one, you yeah. win the series, and it is at the MCG, one of the most iconic stadiums in in Australia, and. Boxing Day Test, you know, one of the famous test matches. You that, can't really yeah. pick a much bigger occasion. Exactly. They won 80,000 people. And um, even until, as you mentioned, Ashwell got injured, played the first test. I, I walked into that second test, you know, in the preparation of it, thinking, well, you know, he's probably going to be back. Um, and it was only really two days before that I got told, right, Ashwell's not fit yet, so you, you will be playing in the second test. And I guess in many ways that took the pressure off me. It's certainly in my mind in that 
well, eventually when he comes back or when he's fit to play, then, you know, I'll sit out again. Um, So irrespective of what my performance is, um, you know, I can just go out and have a bit of fun and enjoy it. And and that certainly took the pressure off me. So, yes, you know, going into that that first, that second test, um, we were under pressure. We lost early wickets, five down pretty quickly. And had the the partnership with with Paul Harris, he got about thirty odd, so we got about a fifty or sixty round partnership. And then it was the 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 partnership with Dale Stain um, that pretty much set up the game for us in that first innings. Like you mentioned, we were two hundred behind. Um, we ended up putting on a, a, a partnership of something about one hundred eighty or something like that. Um, so in the end, yes, I got one hundred and sixty six in that first innings, where we I think we've got one hundred and 140 run lead um, and interestingly the conversation in the change room was let's try and get close to their score as possible so even if we get 100 or 90 or 80 behind we're still in the game mm. and that partnership set us up in a way that we went ahead um, and I remember it fondly it was one of the most iconic moments in my career when I came off after the 166 and this is my only my second test I'm 24 years old and those would know the MCG, it has a tunnel that leads underneath the stadium that goes into the change room. Um, essentially, you know, the MCG is an AFL stadium, uh, American, uh, sorry, Australian football rules, uh, the game that they play. Yeah, and those who don't know cricket, I mean, we're talking a, a monstrous stadium. Yeah, you know, 80, 90, yeah, 90,000 people, yeah. isn't it? So it's yeah. a huge arena. So it's a huge arena. But, but what, the iconic moment for me was... I mean, Graham Smith being the captain, you had um, Cullis in there, Neil McKenzie, uh, Kai Antini, Dale Stane, Morning Morkel, all these guys that have been established in Test cricket. Abdi Villiers also was was playing a few years already. Uh, Andre Nall was on that on that tour, and I walked off. And the appreciation that my teammates showed me, they actually all came out to the front part of the tunnel with their bats. Wow. And they made an arch with their bats as an appreciation of the efforts that, that I had obviously put out in the field. And this was my, my second test match. And that just made me feel like just on top of the world in terms of that experience and a sense of belonging in the environment. And, you know, any youngster coming into any team in any sporting code, what are they craving? They're craving belonging. They're craving to be part of something bigger than themselves. They're craving to be part of something that speaks legacy. And in my second test, here was that experience. Um, And fortunately, as you you mentioned there, we went on to win that test series. Um, But one of the most iconic moments in, in my life, not only just for the personal performance, but how my teammates reacted in that moment that allowed me to feel... Like, this is an iconic, iconic moment, not just for me, but for the team. Yeah, and, and it's history-making. I, mm. I think, you know, 16 years mm. since Australia had lost a home series. Correct. I mean, they were a, a powerhouse of world cricket, arguably the greatest side to ever play in mm. terms of consistency of results over well over a decade. Sure. And they, they, they were invincible at home mm. so here you are as a young man <laughs> you know just yeah. starting out in in test cricket and in in one of the most iconic stadiums in the world mm. in one of the most iconic test matches mm. um creating history for, for yeah. south african cricket um but i've got to ask you the question we'll maybe move on to some of the disappointments but but 
I can hear the kind of joy, you know, mm. the sense of, of what I did for you. But but now you're now you're not just JP Dumini trying to make it at international level. You've now made a name for yourself. Sure. You know, there's media interest, there's celebrity. I would imagine increased possibilities of, mm. of earning more money and gotcha. opportunity. There's fame, there's public attention, media attention. What impact did that have on you positively and negatively how did you navigate that i think positively uh yes i mean there was obviously certain interests um that came with that iconic tour uh, one being the ipl i mean within a few months i was signed up by the mumbai indians for quite a substantial amount of money um so let's call it the rewards were were pretty fruitful you know yeah. from that tour but it, essentially what came with that was the expectation, not only from people around you, but from yourself now. I mean, I remember coming back from that tour and we were in a, in a at a function and we were doing a Q&A and it was mentioned to me that, uh, you know, a, a team, a world team was selected of some of the greatest youngsters around world cricket and I was part of that. So basically a, a world 11 um, from a, let's call it sub 25, under 25 age group. And I was part of that. So what does that present for you? That presents expectation. And, you know, the next six months was probably the most challenging for me in terms of that expectation, where six months later was probably some of the hardest experiences in the game. And, uh, it was a 2009, um, T20 World Cup. We had lost the, the semifinal in, in, uh, in England against Pakistan. But just the nature of the game and how it unfolded made me feel, and I still, you know, I accept the responsibility of it. It was largely because of, because of my innings that we lost the game. Now, I understand that it's a team effort, but I, I certainly need to come to terms with the fact that I played a large part in, in the loss because, you know, I was 40 not out of 37 balls in a T20 game, and we, we were only five down, you know, the likes of Albie Morkel and them haven't even batted and we lost the game. So when I say that was some of the most disappointing experiences, you think about a World Cup experience, South Africa always having challenges in World Cups, and yeah, I was now in a position to have an influence in the game, but didn't. And I remember the experience of it after that game was literally to a point where I felt like I needed to dig a hole and jump in it. And I just wanted people to throw the sand on me and I didn't want to come out of that. And it was only until a coach actually, one of my coaches in, in South Africa I'd spoken to, had said to me that, yeah, you know, you have to take responsibility for that because you played an influence in or played a part in the fact that you lost the game. But at the end of the day, it's not the end of the world for sure. Um, but it was only till that reality of that conversation, because everybody was trying to, you know, encourage you and, you know, that's okay, you know, you know, wasn't your fault, whatever. But until but something was real. You also know that's not true. Exactly. <laughs> so until something was actually real with me, could I actually digest it and, and actually deal with it? Um, so that was one of the toughest nights. It's almost what I'm hearing there. It's actually about accepting I did fail. Yeah. I yeah, did fail. Exactly. Own it. Yeah, but also it doesn't define me. Correct. Yeah, and and even in that identity crisis moment, I, I still struggled with it, you know, and still continued to, for a large part of my life. 
Um, but that was certainly a significant moment that I'll never forget. That that was really tough, and um, needed to find some ways and means of of dealing with it. And unfortunately, those ways and means from time to time weren't healthy, you know. Um, and we've had conversations about these things already, about coping mechanisms, and you know the the substance abuses that that came into play because you were struggling to deal with the the expectation that you had placed upon yourself and you had created this identity for yourself that is through your performance that you view your yourself hundred percent yeah and uh, maybe that's worth un- unpacking a little bit more because I think two two things I, I, I don't think it matters who we are we all have a default unhealthy way mm. of coping with stress. Mm disappointment in our lives Mm. for some people it's just i've had a hard day at work so i'm gonna have another glass of wine Mm. might not be getting drunk Mm. but it's day in day out i'm gonna calm myself i'm gonna do this for some people it's it's pornography for some people it's other substances for some people it's food for some Mm. people it's just i'm gonna work harder Mm. correct you know i'm just gonna work harder but not in a healthy way correct in a way that's actually destructive mm. and leaves you feeling empty and guilty and unfulfilled. Mm. And I think the big reason for that, if I if if I, I might say, is that often in sports, and I think we all do this in life, rather than getting our identity from God mm. and securing our identity in God, we're we're actually trying to secure our identity and our performance. Mm what we do or what people say about us mm. or the rewards we get as a result of successful performance is is how we try to gain our security and acceptance and mm. significance you know so we go to our performance as mm. as our savior to give us our identity when actually we were created to get our identity from god weren't mm. we mm. and actually our performance flows out of that mm. it, it's 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 freeing mm. um and maybe that's a that's a helpful launching point to, to 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 move on in our conversation because, you know, in these moments in your career, you've just had this great high, mm. um, and not long after, you've got this really significant low in your career. You weren't a follower of Jesus at that point. Mm. Um, there might be mental tools that you could lean on, mm. but you couldn't lean on your Creator, the one who'd given you your talent. But you became a, a follower of Christ in twenty thirteen. You know, what impact did that have on you in terms of how you dealt with highs and lows? It was significant. Uh, You know, the experience of the highs and lows weren't as extreme anymore. And it was the understanding that you're not giving yourself the glory for that performance and you're not digging the hole for yourself when there's not the performance. And you shining the light rather on God in that moment as opposed to a, a, in an appreciation for the opportunity, whether it's a successful one or not. So it's almost the idea of the audience of one mm-hmm. um, where you, you're playing for him and you're accepting and appreciating this gift that he's given you. And again, when, when I think about the call-up prayer book and it says this in there, in one of the prayers where my gift to you is the expression of it, you mm-hmm. know, and, and how I go out there, what's my mindset and just giving it my all irrespective of the outcome. And it's amazing how once we are reminded of this in whatever capacity we find ourselves in, I find myself as a coach now 
where in many ways you've even got less control of the effect of the game, mm. right? So where does your identity lie is even more significant sometimes. Um, but just coming back to it, it, it's, it, it's the idea that this is greater than me, you know, and, and, and that has certainly been the nourishing experience uh, throughout it all, mm -hmm. that my performance does not determine who I am. And it's not my identity. He is my identity. Um, but even in saying that, doesn't mean that the old experience is fruitful. Um, but it's just a great foundation to be solidified in that allows you to deal a little bit better with it. That's great. That's great. So what would JP Dumini, Coach JP Dumini, <laughs> at 38 years of age, what would he say to that 24-year-old if he had the opportunity today? It's going to be okay. You know, whatever experiences you go through, it's going to be okay. And I mean, I, I have these experiences on a day-to-day -day basis with my players. You know, we've got a range of age groups um, leading from 19 to 39. And the most amazing experience is no matter what age you find yourself, everyone seeks affirmation. Mm. Everyone seeks affirmation. Uh, everyone seeks um, an opportunity to express vulnerability. Even myself as a coach, you know, having the support around me to allow myself to be vulnerable, but also be brave enough to be vulnerable in front of my people. Uh, in front, in front of my players, to allow them the opportunity to express that themselves, and that's actually really countercultural, mm. because you know when you cross the line, whether it's the, the the white line of a football or rugby field, or you cross the boundary rope to perform, there's a, there, there's a sense in which you've got to act, mm. you've got to act tough, mm. you know, you've got to be strong, mm. um, and 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 as a result of that, actually, the sporting culture. Mm. Um, doesn't seize vulnerability as weakness, doesn't it? Mm. I think. Mm. Um, and you know, I'm 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 just wondering how your 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 athletes, you know, your your players are are responding to that because it is so countercultural. Mm. I think, for the most part, in my own experience of it, um, I I think they've responded reasonably well. Uh, and I think the the key for me is that I need to lead it for the most part, uh, to allow for guys to feel comfortable to share. But can I also create an environment that if it's not me that they're vulnerable with, that they do have an outlet for mm -hmm. it? And I think that's a critical piece in this. Because uh, naturally, in the cricketing culture, or even just sporting culture, it's tough for players to go and confront or be vulnerable with a head coach. Because yeah. they always uh, associate that with selection. Yeah. Right? So... I've got to be mindful of that because not too long ago I was a player, so I understood how that worked. So can I create a, a space and a platform and a resource uh, for guys to, to have a place to go to to be vulnerable? Yeah, yeah, I think that's really important. I, I'm going to say that as a sports chaplain because yeah. I, think, I think creating safe spaces yeah. for coaches and sports people to be able to share... Uh, vulnerability and weakness mm. not for them to stay in that place but yeah. for, for them to, to process it yeah. healthily so that they can have fresh perspective mm. on their circumstances and situations 
all of us need safe spaces in yeah. our lives. Doesn't matter what our profession, what our career is, what our background is, we we all need it. Yeah. But our time together is coming to an end. So I've got a, a question. We're, we're going to be asking um, on a regular basis uh, all the athletes who come on here, and that is um, um, tell us about your favorite prayer or theme in the Call Up prayer book. I, I think to to respond to that question, I, I think it has certainly varied according to you know where I found myself as a player and now obviously as a coach. So... I think one of the most anxious experiences as a player, for the most part, was always pre-competition. And and one of the main reasons why that would be is you can find yourself in a space where you almost play the game beforehand, mm. right? So you're anticipating performance, you're anticipating who you're coming up against. And that can create some anxiety within you. Uh, so when I, when I think about that, I, I, the pre-competition prayers were certainly some of the... Uh, the prayers that I um, relied on and, and found comfort in because it allowed me to find the peace of the understanding that you've done all that you can that you could in terms of preparation. There's obviously the work that you put in. Um, and now it's about surrendering the outcome when you cross that boundary rope. Uh, I often speak about the dugout effect being one of the most anxious experiences, meaning if you next into bat, it's probably one of the most daunting times uh, for any cricketer because you're sitting there and you're watching the game unfold, but yet you're not part of the game just as yet. And what happens is you you play back in your mind of what could happen. And it's not the actual experience. But when you when you cross that rope, you have to live in the now. You have to live in the present for yeah. you to give yourself the best chance to perform. So it's actually the the, the sort of pre-game that is the most difficult. But once you're in the moment, you live in that moment. Yeah. Um, so I've certainly found that to be one of the most critical pieces. And then as a coach, um, I, I look back to, you know, the prayer book. There's also prayers for coaches here. And, and why I think that is critical is because, again, it comes down to the fact of you understanding how do you prepare your guys? What can you uh, have an effect on? How do you influence people? And all that we can do is give them the comfort and the understanding that they are good enough. You give them the affirmation. You give them the respect. You give them the, the know-how of potential tools they can use. But in their preparation, that's your part to play. And can you surrender the outcome in their performance as well as the team and you know, be content with whatever happens needs to happen? Um, and that's that's certainly been something that I've tried to focus on. I'm too old now, but I'd love you to be my coach. <laughs> what about a locker room song to close us with? A locker room worship song. Um, I, I think of, I think it's Chris Tomlin, if I'm not mistaken. How great is our God? Mm. Um, and I, I've certainly found myself, even still today driving to work, playing this song at its ultimate volume and, and just in appreciation of the exact words, how great is our God? Because if the focus and emphasis is, is on him, you know, I can just surrender my burdens. I can surrender the challenges that, you know, the job presents on a day-to-day -day basis and just lean on him in every aspect. And that's certainly something that I would like to think that 
I'm very aware of that even as I'm sitting here, you know, we're doing this podcast recording, Lord, lead the way. You know, in a conversation with a player, Lord, lead the way. In the uh, outcome of a game, Lord, lead the way. In every moment, can we just, or can I certainly rely on Him and be aware of His presence so that He can lead the way? And if I can find myself more often than not in that space, you know, I think that peace and understanding will surround me. Awesome. JP, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. The Call Up Podcast, where faith meets sport and life. This is brought to you by Sports Chaplaincy South Africa. The Power of His Dream brings you here. LIA Productions.